Scripture this morning is from Psalm 25. Hear the word of the Lord. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity, and their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope, Lord, is in you. Deliver Israel, O God, from all their troubles. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ryan. Um, Thanks for that reading, Ryan. Um, Boy, thank you also to Nathan Young. I just saw that trailer for this sermon series for the first time, like some of you, and I heard the gasps behind me. It's really in visual form the entire thesis of this new series we're going in, so um, you're all dismissed. You've heard enough. No. Uh, I'm Brian Kay. I'm, uh, as you may know, one of the pastors here at the church, so happy to be kicking off this series on Sundays, uh, this Sunday. So, in fact, we are entering a series called Cry of the Soul, Trusting God with Our Difficult Emotions, and you know, a flyover of what that means as a, why we'd even give many weeks on Sundays to such a series would really be to say this, human beings, according to scripture, really are threefold in how we operate. We are thinking creatures, we have thoughts, uh, we are volitional creatures, meaning we have a will, we're deciders, we do things, we have habits of life, uh, but we are also feeling creatures, we have emotions. And some of those emotions are joyful and pleasant, and some of those are difficult and hard. And in the Lenten season, we're doing a very countercultural thing, which is to give a little bit of additional airtime to the harder side of our emotional life and asking what in the world that has to do with following God, with being in the scriptures, with being um, people who are trying to follow hard after Jesus Christ. And so... When I say counterculture, well, countercultural, what I mean is that very often our feeling life, we do two things with it. We either bury the feelings, 
and we're, some of us are really good at this, forcing feelings down. Some of you have admitted this to me even very recently. That's what you do with feelings. You stuff them, you put them in a box, especially if they're unpleasant. And that can work for a little while, or maybe years and years until it stops working. Um, or the other side of it, in our culture especially, is to vent your feelings. As if any feeling you have, uh, everybody's got to know about it at full volume, all the way to 10, and as if that was some virtue. And venting can sometimes work. It will kind of purchase you some kind of equilibrium for a little while, but it usually ends up hurting others, and it can even sink you further into the darkness of some feeling state. So is there a third way? And there is a third way. It's a scriptural way. It's a way that we learn about in the book of Psalms, especially in the Bible. The Psalms is... As John Calvin said years ago, and I usually give this quote like about every seven and a half minutes at, uh, when I'm doing anything in public ministry, Calvin said that the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul. But I think we can reappropriate that quote a little bit for this series and say that the Psalms are a catalog of all of our emotions, both the positive ones and the negative ones. And in watching the psalmist write about, pray through those feelings, we learn a third way of how to handle the, the dark side of our own emotional life. So this week, we're looking at shame in particular. And Bart's the one that came up with this series, and I'm wondering why he put shame first. And I, think I've got a, I think I've got a guess for why shame is first uh, in Bart's mind, and he's not here for me to confirm that publicly. I, I would not be beyond it. I would just point at him. But let's talk about shame for a second. Shame has become a, a very large topic of concern for our um, our culture, and it's a kind of a new thing to get this far into it, because shame was very under-discussed. It was under-researched. If you looked at psychological literature, you found almost nothing on shame until, really, as far as I can tell, about 10 years ago, 12 years ago even. Well, I should say, there was a book. Did anyone ever read this book by John Bradshaw called, uh, what was his name? Heal oh, the Healing the Shame That Binds You. Anyone ever read that? Okay, oh, there we go. There's a couple. I thought, like, some, there's going to be some stalwarts in here. We'll have read that. You're ahead of the culture by about 15 years. Okay. Um, but really, it was about 12 years ago that a woman who was a professor at the University of Houston created a TED Talk. Her name was Brene Brown. She was a professor of social work, and she did a TED Talk called The Power of Vulnerability in which she talked about vulnerability as an antidote to shame. And then about two years later, she did another TED Talk, which was just called uh, Listening to Shame. And that first of those two videos became, I think it still is, the fifth most watched TED Talk of, of anything. There's about 19 million views as of two nights ago uh, on YouTube for this talk. And through Brene Brown, really, shame had arrived for at least American culture. People were paying attention to it now. Why did her talk resonate so much? And I, my guess is it's because once you really hear shame defined, once you really hear shame discussed uh, at some level of depth, most of us go, oh my goodness, yes. I've experienced that. I still experience it. I had a family of origin that shame lived large, and now I have a word for it. Shame is something that has this long effect where, where you can have moments of deep shame that will trail with you for decades even, unless it's dealt with. And there's some kind of aha moment about that. If you're a follower of God and you're a Bible reader, you, 
you might have even heard that Brene Brown talk, and you thought, oh, wait a minute, that's, goodness, the Bible talks about shame, now that, I, now that you mention it, Brene Brown. Genesis 2.5 is the first time that it shows up explicitly in the scripture, and it's really, it's anti-shame there. The Bible says that Adam and Eve were naked and, anyone? And, and felt no shame and were unashamed. So they're unashamed first, but it takes less than a chapter for them to be full of shame as they cover themselves with the fig leaf. They've given up on the voice of God, at least for a horrible dark moment. And in the shame of having done that, there's a need to cover and run. For the Bible to put shame right up at the top like this in terms of the emotional human experience we all feel is really to project a theme that goes throughout Scripture. Shame is the most discussed emotion in the Bible. Um, and therefore, for the Scriptures, it's just something that all of us need to think about and deal with and really wake up to because we all have it to some degrees. We might be healing from it, but it does follow us throughout our life. So what are we going to do about it? Let me um, throw out a, a theme that will go out through the rest of this sermon, and I'll kind of wind it up, at, at, hopefully in a tidy-ish way at the end, but just to let the cat out of the bag at the front. Shame, when we experience it, it often leads immediately to contempt. And if you can keep that nexus in your mind, the feeling of shame leads very quickly to contempt, a striking out, and we, what we do when we strike out in contempt is either we attack the one who shamed us or we, our, we attack ourselves for having been so foolish. The biblical trajectory of healing is to replace contempt with grief and then faith. So we're all going to experience shame, and I'll explain why, but then to replace contempt with grief, to actually grieve the thing that you have lost because you have lost very often around shame. Something's... Something has disappeared. A good has disappeared from your life. But grieving that directly uh, is the next important step. And then right following after that is a restored faith, a restored commitment in Jesus Christ as the rock of our lives versus any other rock. And I'll explain this some more as we go through. But let's talk about the anatomy of shame first. There are two types of shame to know about. One is shame that other people cause us, and then it's, secondly, shame that we cause ourselves, that we bring upon our own head. So that, let's talk about the shame that others cause us. So this is, whenever someone shames us, does something toward us, and we, we see this in Psalm 25. Psalm 25 mentions really both kinds of shame in a way, but the front and center is the shame that the psalmist is afraid may be... <laughs> coming his way at the hands of his enemies. So in verse 2, it says, Lord, I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. He's expecting a turn of events in his life where he will be shamed from the outside. So shame others cause us can be very overt. It can be what the psalmist is worried about, which is some form of public humiliation, even violence done toward him. But it can also be very subtle. To be shamed by someone can be a very subtle move. And here's a way of defining it that captures the subtle and the not-so-subtle forms. Shaming happens anytime that we are told or anytime it's implied that we are somehow fundamentally worthless, somehow fundamentally foolish, or somehow fundamentally undesirable. 
I could add also here, it's fundamentally unlovable, and I probably should, but I want to get desirable into. The shame would tell us that no one would even, no one would even like someone or be drawn to someone like you. This can be done overtly, but it can be done very subtly. Very often in civil society where we're not like attacking each other's tribes with spears, shame's weapon is mockery. Subtle mockery even. And there are two tragedies when we're shamed like this. The first tragedy is this. Shame, the voice of shame, is always only telling a partial truth about us. This is the crime and the sin of shaming. It's telling at best a partial truth. In other words, there might be something undesirable about you. You might be doing something unpleasant or even wrong, or you might have a frailty or a weakness. But what shaming does is it seizes on that weakness, and then it says that's the whole story about you. It takes one uh, uh, moment of frailty or even real failure or even sin. It's not like shame. It, the, the damage of it is that it's catching on to a partial thing and it's making it a whole thing. It's, the, it's telling us that your depravity is the main thing about you. Scripture would say that human nature is kind of this uh, swirling combination of dignity and depravity. By dignity, fundamental to all human beings, we have dignity because we're image bearers of God. We reflect something of God's character, something of God's goodness in nature. Even the most shabby of us morally have some kind of a glim glimmer still there holding on by God's grace of, our dig of dignity. But we also have depravity, meaning we have a tendency, all of us, to turn in on ourselves, to become loveless, to become selfish. It's always swirling around. And what, what shaming does is it captures the, a glimpse of the depravity and says, that's the whole, when it nets out for you, that's the main thing about you. You're a loser, undesirable, unlovable. That's criminal because it's leaving out the truth of our dignity. But the second thing about the tragedy of it is that it seduces us. Shame is a way of seducing us into agreeing with it. And so when you're shamed from the outside, that's one thing. But shame has a way of seducing you to say, uh, well, seducing you to install in your own heart the voice of the shamer and then to kind of replay that tape throughout your life. This is why children are the most susceptible to shame, also married people. First children, secondarily married people. Children and married people are in like bound relationships of trust, but children especially they have their parents, they might have some siblings, but they don't have a whole lot of other strong, trusting voices. So when there's a shaming voice, especially from a parent, especially the younger and younger that child is, there's no other way to recalibrate the truth. So they assume, in the voice of shaming coming toward them, that must be real. And so they install that voice internally. And in the therapy work that I do, I'm just consistently meeting people at, at any decade of life. And no matter what they come in to talk to me about, if they stick around for more than seven or eight sessions, we're, we always end up with a shame story. I don't even go hunting for it. It just spills out. Oh, and then by the way, when I was seven, I was told a number of times that I was a failure and I'd never amount to anything. And once I nod and listen and make some space for that story and don't chase after the next present struggle, that story starts to really unfurl and we see the damage it's done over the decades. So shame's uh, it, it's, uh, it's real evil is how it makes us install that voice ourselves. How do you heal any of this? I'm just going to sprinkle the healing motions throughout the sermon here. Uh, it's almost, uh, don't interpret this as a formula, 
because it's not, but the, the, the shape of healing to these kind of shaming voices is to learn how to tell the truth to ourselves about ourselves. You gotta learn to tell the truth. Scripture is the best repository for truth about ourselves because it tells us not just about our depravity, but about our dignity. There is no greater repository of positive messages about your core dignity than the Bible. You, you can find versions of it in the culture, but they're all shallow. I'm being very dramatic here, I know. But scripture, it's honest enough to say, no, you are depraved. You, you, you have some loser in you. You really do. All of us do. Only Jesus is the one who didn't. But you do have this deep dignity. Someone who's a follower of Christ can say, I might have totally blown it this week, morally, interpersonally, however. I might have massively blown it earlier in my life. But as I turn toward him, I can claim the promise that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's Philippians chapter 1. That's a claim. You're saying, God is at work in me. I might, shaming voice, I might have blown it, but I've got a God, the God of the universe, who created the galaxies, is specifically at work in my heart to move me closer to him. I'm not a lost cause. To quote that Bono line from, what's that song? Beautiful Day. Teach me love. I know I'm not a hopeless case. Scripture tells us, no matter how deep you go into the depths, you're never a hopeless case. Well, we could almost stop a sermon here because this is enough to work on for our whole life, is to find these rich um, messages of Scripture that tell us a truer story about identity than a shaming voice. But um, in this zone, we're pretty close to the John Bradshaw stuff. We're pretty close to the Brene Brown stuff that says to unwriting these scripts and replacing them with truer scripts. So I want to go in the, the, the last half of the sermon to a deeper definition of shame that we don't get in those TED Talk sources that I think is the main show when it comes to Scripture's way of addressing shame. But this is going to be a little dicier, this part. And this is where I'll get the email saying, come on now. <laughs> so start composing the email now. <laughs> Maybe never hit send, but I'll, I, will, I will read it. So this is the shame that we cause ourselves, shame that's our fault. A deeper level of shame is the painful feeling of being exposed for having trusted in the wrong things. Uh, the, it's the pain of having trusted in something other than God for our identity, safety, for our very life. To feel that something, whatever it is, if it's a person, if it's an ideology, if it's a, it's a strength that I have in my natural self, to have leaned too hard into that and to have that thing fail me and to be seen failing um, causes a wash of shame. But it's the shame of our idols toppling off the mantelpiece of our hearts. Scripture would say that we're all idolaters, even the best of us. And that doesn't mean that you're bowing down to a wood or stone carving, but it does mean you're taking some good thing in creation, even a gift of God in your life, and you're over-leaning on that for your safety, identity, approval. By God's grace, those idols will topple, and when they do, the first experience we have is shame. We're embarrassed for having touched it. This can come in mild and in severe ways. Here's a mild way. So this literally happened at 1 p.m. yesterday to me. Uh, <laughs> I was having lunch. It was my wife's birthday, and so we were sitting down at a table at this great brunch. It's a wonderful day. I'm sitting directly across from my mother and father-in-law and sister-in-law. 
And the topic turns around to Sunday morning, and my father-in-law says, oh, so Brian, you're preaching on shame, I hear. Um, tell us about that. And so I say, well, and I grab my cup of coffee, prepare to take a sip before launching into a really eloquent summary of what I'm giving you now. And, but instead of the, drinking the coffee, I miss my lip, and coffee goes down my chin <laughs> and my shirt a little bit on the table. And uh, I, I'll be honest with you, there's a, just a little spike of shame there. Just a, it, this, is a, this is a mild story, granted. Just a little spike of shame, and then I laughed, and then I kind of wiped up and got into it, got into the story. Well, why did I have a little spike of shame there? And I would confess to you, and it's literally a confession of sin before you, that um, I was over-relying in that moment about the fact that I was about to deliver a pretty darned eloquence and powerfully biblical summary of this sermon. And there was enough people listening that that was going to be a moment, I was going to be in the, in the spotlight as an eloquent Christian thinker and teacher. And um, what happened, though, was I got revealed for also being someone who hadn't really learned yet in 53 years how to deliver a hot beverage to my mouth uh, (laughs) successfully. I was revealed as something of a bumbler in that moment. And uh, that was not, I I was over-relying on a very different image. Now, this is not massive shame. I laughed at it, and of course, I quickly realized I had a great sermon illustration for the next day, and so it was a net positive. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I hope you can hear the mechanic of idolatry there. Um, it was uh, just, it's a, a, even a slight over-attachment to something good in our life when that good is stripped away, even momentarily, leads to this ugh of shame. Here's a more severe version. Some of you might know who Philip Yancey is. He's a great Christian author for many decades wrote a great book called Disappointment with God. He just, I just found this tweet from him this week. It was kind of a long tweet um, revealing that he has been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And uh, it's very mild right now, but here's what he said about it. And here's how he brings in the Psalms, amazingly, even our Psalm, Psalm 25. Philip Yancey says, the Psalm leads with these words. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Never let me be put to shame. Although the poet wrote in very different circumstances, harassed by human enemies rather than nerve disease, the words, never let me be put to shame, jumped out at me. Other Psalms, see Psalm 25, 31, 34, repeat this odd phrase. A measure of shame seems to accompany disability. There is an innate shame in inconveniencing others for something that is neither your fault nor your desire, and a shame in having well-meaning friends overact Some may treat you like a fragile antique and complete your sentences when you pause for a second to think of a word. Though still experiencing only mild symptoms, already I anticipate shame over how these may worsen, drooling, memory gaps, slurred speech, hand tremors. Psalm 71 adds, do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. That prayer expresses the silent plea of all disabled persons as a group a group that now includes me. The challenge that Phil Yancey is beginning to articulate there is a challenge in the face of the possibility of shame that comes when disability of any kind is revealed to others. It's a, it's a difficult one. Phil Yancey is so articulate about the inner life, and he's even beginning to articulate the possibility of the 
shame that comes from over-relying on natural abilities that in God's economy are all taken away from us slowly as we age, sadly, but definitely and surely. And to have that inability be met with others uh, over-helping leads to this pang. If, you could, if, you, if there was a way in this life to not overvalue any of even the good gifts that we were given by God, if they were taken away, we would experience grief, grief over the loss, but not shame for having over-relied in those good gifts. That's the whole, that's the, that's the thesis of the sermon, by the way. If there, if there was a way to process the loss of the good things of our life with grief, grief over the loss of a good gift, that's proper. There's many Psalms on that too. If we could process with grief um, instead of shame, shame that reveals over-relying in those gifts, we would be spared much heartache. Well, to put a fine point on it, strong senses of shame can reveal the thing, the thing or things that we've trusted in other than God for our ultimate identity, for our ultimate acceptance, for our ultimate embrace. In other words, idols. I hope that you would become a person slowly who is quick to confess where the idols of your heart are. Don't deny being an idolater. Get curious about the idols that you cling to. They may be very respectable idols, but when we cling too hard, they are idols nonetheless. Uh, you know, by way of contrast, have you ever met a person who has experienced either loss or disability or some kind of public failure and they don't seem to experience any shame or embarrassment? Uh, now, look, there are narcissists who do this also, but they're, they've got another, we've got another sermon for those characters, uh, and we've all got some narcissism in us. But there's a way uh, of kind of a, 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 a light-hearted form that some people can really adopt well, is so admirable and, and relatively rare, of losing in public somehow, and yet not struck by shame. And as I thought about, who are the examples of this? Of course, I came, for the, just how my mind works, to um, Buddy the Elf, played by Will Ferrell, in uh, the great Christmas movie, Elf. Uh, there is one line in that movie that I thought, this is, this is a guy who has no shame. And it's the moment where, if you've ever seen that movie, he falls in love with the, the girl who works at the department store. And um, he's such a goofball, and she's such, you know, kind of a, a well-rounded beauty. Well, she is grumpy, I guess. But uh, he comes home, and he tells his dad, here's the exact line, Dad! I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. Uh, the, why is that a shame-free line? It's because he's confessing the possibility that he's going to express love to this girl and she will reject him. There's a high possibility that's going to happen if you saw the movie. He's, he's a goofball. Uh, he wears a pointy hat and he's in his, well into his 40s. Uh, but to say, I don't care who knows, it says, I'm exposing the yearning of my heart to be accepted and to be enjoyed and be desired. And I don't care who knows, it says, even if I fail, I'm kind of fine failing publicly in my attempt here. Um, the antidote to shame is being someone who is okay with failing publicly. Let's go further into the cure, though. How do you get to this place in life where you can, where you can be a buddy of the elf, but in much deeper ways? As I said, Grief followed by trust. That's the formula. It's not a formula, but it's a formula. Grief followed by trust in God. Grief means you've got to be able to name where the losses are and, and be very frank about them. 
I used to be able to do this, but now I don't have that ability anymore. I used to have this in the bank account, but then I invested poorly, and now I've really, it's, I've, I've, I've tanked. I made some unwise choices. I used to have this, but it's been withdrawn from me. I, <laughs> I have a great story to tell, but I just spilled coffee. Isn't it funny that I spilled? I invite you to laugh at the coffee spill. This is the, these are the kind of the rhythms of, of grief. Um, it can be big G grief. It can be small G grief, but become a person who's able to grieve. But then the next move is faith. Throughout this psalm, the psalmist keeps vacillating in a good way between a fear of being shamed and then re-grounding himself on Christ, the solid rock I stand, a great line for this sermon, standing anew on his trust in God as the source for all, every good thing. So verse 2, I tr- listen to how trust and shame um, are counterpositioned. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Well, really, psalmist? I mean, the the Babylonians might come and destroy Jerusalem. Really, psalmist? Who knows knows what's going to happen to your enemies within the court uh, of Israel? But the psalmist says here, no, the, the real shame that matters cannot fall upon one who trusts in God. To the degree that you trust in God for your identity, safety, and desirability, you become bulletproof with regards to shame. And this is an absolute theme throughout the scriptures. If you go to the New Testament even, 1 Peter 2, 6, and he's quoting the Old Testament here, Peter says, For in Scripture it says, See, I I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. If you trust in the rock, you will never be put to shame. Romans 5, 5, And hope does not put us to shame. Why not? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you trust in, hope in, those are synonyms nearly, God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can't ultimately be put to shame. This kind of shame, while it's painful when we, when we experience it, um, it can be helpful to us because it reveals the idols of our heart. The next time you feel a stab of pain, next time you spill coffee down your chest, Next time you trip in public, the next time someone catches you in a physical act of um, disability, the next time you say something inappropriate and you feel that pang of shame, you can thank God (laughs) because what it's doing in that moment, what he's doing in that moment is alerting you to the presence, possibly, uh, of an idol of your heart. Get curious about that. Use your shame rather than avoiding it. I'll just close with these words. Jesus Christ is the ultimate shame destroyer himself. He's not just one that we rely on to be saved from shame. He actively dissolves it. On the cross, when Jesus Christ submitted to be killed by the Romans, we know this about Roman crucifixion. It was the most, we often say this, the most shameful death a person could die at that period of Roman history. And the writer to Hebrews acknowledges this shame that Jesus openly faced and accepted, this is the shame from others on him, he did it for the sake of you and me. And the verse is that we should be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the ultimate shame destroyer, who is the pioneer and the perfecter of of our faith. And then here's the line, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ scorned the shame of the cross. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus faced what he knew. He walked right into what he knew would be the most shameful death. He would be looked at by others and laughed at. 
And, and they're doing the exact thing that shame always does. Look at you, Messiah wannabe. You wanted to be loved and accepted and even worshipped. Oh, you had such high hopes for yourself. Now look what's happening to you. That's mockery. It's the classic voice of shame. And Jesus said, I know you're going to do that to me. And I'm going to allow this to happen anyway for the joy set before me. And the joy set before me is I'm going to gather a people to myself by doing this. I'm going to pay for their sin. I'm going to wash away all of their shame. I'm going to give pleasure to my father who has sent me on this mission that I've accepted. I will scorn the shame that comes in at me for a deeper hope and a deeper joy. And that is our challenge too. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, confess before you on one hand that we have been shamed by others. Help us to take seriously those moments when we've been hurt by the voice of mockery. Help us to not go to contempt and fury to the mocker or fury at ourself. Help us to turn toward grief. But also more deeply, Lord, help us to return our trust to you. We are not naturally good at this, so we pray for your supernatural help to yield our life, to stand on the rock of Christ for our identity. Help us to have faith. We believe, Lord, but help our unbelief where it exists and give us, deliver us into the joy of your son, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior and our King. Amen.